0: Welcome to The Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s. We are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. In this episode, our guest is Craig Hickman, a black member of the Harvard College Class of 1990. He is a Democratic politician living in Maine and one of six openly gay members of the legislature. He is also an organic farmer. We talk with Craig about politics and okra. On the Zoom session with us are classmates Mason Morfitt Jerry Secundi, Connie McDougal, John Woodford, Craig Allen, George Jones, Fred Easter, Nick Bancroft, Cindy Wardle, and Marcy Benstock. And now we have our uh, hero from Atlanta, George Jones, where everybody did the right thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Wait, yeah. you? Know. Yeah, where is George.
2: Yeah, good for Georgia.
1: I am thrilled to be in the home of the two newest United States senators. Yay. Would not have thought in a million years that this yeah. could no, have. No, it's
2: amazing. Amazing.
1: Right. And I think we owe this success to two people, Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump.
2: Oh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> that's a good point and
0: our guest now is uh craig hickman how are you where are you and uh what's going on good to see you well first of
3: all thank you for inviting me um i and thank you for sending me the book i haven't read it yet i'll be honest but i have at least read the introduction and i love the title i didn't know what it meant until i got to it <laughs> and I love the title of the book and I put it down at that point and I'll get back to it later. Okay, good. I'm digesting, I'm just digesting the fact of the last Negroes at Harvard. And so you are my elders and I'm just happy to be here and honored to be among them. Um, Where are you? I am in Winthrop, Maine, which is 15 In Winthrop, miles. Maine? Winthrop, Maine, yes. which is. Do they about, know you're there? Oh, they know I'm here, and um, for the last eight years, I have been a state representative from a very white and very conservative and very rural district in the state of Maine. So I've worked in the legislature on making sure that our small farms and our small food producers in the state of Maine can thrive, and that we don't have people going to bed hungry every night. Maine is a very poor state, and uh, one in four of our children go to bed hungry every night and that's gotten worse this year because of COVID and the terrible economy. And so um, I turned out of office and I did run for secretary of state. It is a legislative appointment. I use that in quotes because it is an election, but it's an election amongst your colleagues. And sometimes those are predetermined. This one wasn't, I have to say. Um, The result ended up being quite a surprise, but, Shenna Bellows, who was my state senator, uh, worked really hard and outsmarted all of us and won the election. And um, I, I and thank you for making calls, uh, Mister. I don't have your Mason. Mason, where do you live, sir? Uh, South Report. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. There you have it. <laughs> little little uh, liberal bubble. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Okay. Um, and yeah, who was that district? Well, obviously one of them ran, so <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. He didn't vote. Uh, there, uh, she did. She actually nominated him, so it's all good. Anyway, I didn't win. So what ended up happening was the president of the Maine Senate sort of influenced me and convinced me to run for something I never thought I wanted to do, which was the Maine Senate. And one of the reasons why I didn't want to do it was because as a farmer, I feel like the district is a little too expansive for me to really be a good senator because I want to continue to farm. But because of where we are right now in our country and um, in our democracy, I decided that if my voice was, if people convinced me around here that, and in the state, that my voice was too important to go silent out of the public eye. So what I consider running for the seat, the elections on March 9th, I said, only if you guys do all the work because I'm tired, I was supposed to be retired. And then I was going to be Secretary of State and that would still be a lot of work, but it's a completely different way of having to deal with the public. and you've got a lot of deputies and you have a staff and you can actually really do good work. And it's not all on me, but as a state rep in a small district, in a small state, it's all on you. And I take the job seriously. And while it may be a citizen legislature and we may only get a stipend for the part-time work that we do, it's a full-time job and and constituent services is the job. And that doesn't stop when we're out of session. It doesn't stop in the middle of the night. It I can set a boundary, but somebody is probably gonna crash right through it because in Maine, most people have our cell phones. (laughs) That's just the accessibility that our constituents have with us. And since I do my job and take it seriously and and care deeply about people, I'm I'm tired because eight years of, of doing that work wore me out. But here we are. And I would say probably that if the events of two days ago had happened before I made my decision, I may not have made my decision to run for the Senate. And so it's going to be tricky. It's going to be hard. It is. There's not a lot of white supremacists in the district, but that doesn't mean there are none. And oh boy, do they feel good today. So um, they just do. And I think that I, I'm not convinced there won't still be a coup. I'm not convinced that we don't need to worry about the military. Um, <clears throat> from what I'm reading and seeing and getting reports of behind the scenes, you know, the Department of Defense was just the upper brass, the civilian leadership was just replaced by Trump loyalists. And he told them to stand down and they stood down. They did not allow those National Guard troops to be sent to secure the Capitol because they needed to allow for the president's personal army to to do the thing that they did, which I'm still glad that I can be shocked by something. Surprised? Not at all. Shocked? Yes. More shocked by what happened in Georgia, which I'm glad we can talk about a little here too, because if Georgia sends the first black person and the first Jewish person to the United States Senate a day before a white, mob of domestic terrorists tries to take siege of the Capitol, execute the vice president and whoever else they were going to execute and or kidnap, and install Donald Trump and his family as dictators for life, we are,
4: we are where we've never been. Right. The events of those two days are tied together. Absolutely. Loosely, maybe, but tied together, yes. But maybe not even so. um, um, it's,
3: it's not as if in the same way we knew this was happening, it's not as if we didn't know we could win those seats. Um and so there was absolutely a a recognition that that the victories in Georgia could materialize. I actually believed it. I thought that one I thought that Warnock would absolutely win. And I thought that if he could drag us off over the finish line, it would be by about 0. 0.4 percentage points. And there you go. <laughs> Um, And they both made it on the plus side of 50%. I wasn't sure that that would happen. I thought they might split it 0.4 percentage points apart on opposite sides of the victory, but they both got over the finish line. And I haven't had an opportunity to rejoice in that because of what happened the very next day, um, which has taken me to my bone marrow because as an elected official who knows how easy it is to have your Capitol building breached. I mean, we never really were in danger ever there. But there were a couple of times where we were kind of like, it's a little crowded in here and people are a little agitated and the Capitol Police are not equipped to deal with all of this because they're just not that kind of law enforcement apparatus, at least not in Maine. I don't know where he There's went. There's a
4: sister at, at, the universe, at Rutgers University who put that very succinctly, I thought. Brittany is her first name, Cooper maybe. But in any event, she said, White violence is seen as protest. Black protest is seen as violence.
2: Yeah, I saw that.
3: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Yeah, I saw that, and that is true. And I saw another one that's similar, but actually even more heartbreaking. And it is, she said, I'm tired of living in a country where white rage is considered a sacrament, and white and Black grief is considered a
0: threat. Craig, we've got 11 days to go for the idiot still to be there. And I think you know the genie's out of the bottle at this point in time, even the idiots recognize what is happening. But once the new administration comes in and can remove the c- civilian oversight to the military, which was totally idiots, uh, are you still as concerned as to where we're going over the next few months? I must admit, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think we have to be wary, no question about it. I think we have to be vigilant but I think we're gonna have a sea change at that point in time. I'm not as concerned.
3: I'm a little too cynical probably is the right word or as my mother used to say, you are too black for all of that. I might be a little too black to feel that way. So I actually don't wanna say out loud what I'm feeling because I don't wanna bring it to bear but let's just say that I will not sleep until Joe Biden is actually inaugurated president. And here's what I will say to let you know how bad I feel about what's gonna happen in the next 10 days. The inauguration should be in an undisclosed location.
2: I agree with you. With
3: no no fanfare. Right. And the only people who should be protecting the soon-to-be president at that time are Secret Service folks that he's had in his in his center forever. No new faces. I do not trust this president's ability. I do not trust Putin. Remember, Putin is running the show here. Nobody wants to say it for real. I'm gonna say it, because I'm not a journalist. I don't have to prove it. The evidence proves it for me. Donald Trump is too stupid to realize, in my humble opinion, that once he gets where he's gonna be, if he pulls off this coup, which I think is still absolutely possible for him to do, I really, really do. I don't think we're out of the woods by any far stretch of the imagination. What he doesn't seem to understand, though, once he gets himself there, let's just play it all the way to the tragic end. Putin's not letting him stay there. Putin's already here. We don't even know the extent of the cyber attack that we've just gotten some information about. We don't know what the actual plan was beyond mayhem and murder, but we saw folks who looked like professionals, not just mobsters. They actually looked like professionals mixed in with the group, that this this event was a cover for something else.
5: I think it was mainly, uh, these are a group of uh, right-wing vigilante type, uh, paramilitary and nut groups that are around the country. And they put out a call to them and they came in and they, and they had their little chaotic event, but... <clears throat> country of our size and power and organization it's i don't think that it's uh control is threatened um, by such as that they can cause some mayhem here and there but but they're not going to take over they're not going to take over the the uh country
6: i think uh, one sort of a snapshot <clears throat> uh springs to my mind and that's the patriots <clears throat> have once again The Patriots is in quotes, of course. The Patriots have given us, again, a present of a diminution of our freedom as United States citizens. We now see a Capitol with uh, a high fence around it, Jersey barriers, possibly concertina wire somewhere in the future. We look like the Capitol building in Port-au-Prince, Many of the capital buildings in Indonesia, uh, you name it, <clears throat> they're surrounded and there's sometimes a tank. There will be military with <clears throat> uh, automatic weapons and so on and so forth. That is a huge change from being able as a citizen to go see your senator walk in to the capital with minimum security, like going to a museum. Once again, our freedom has been diminished by an act of terrorism. We used to walk onto planes on the tarmac. You know, you get your ticket, you show your ticket, you work on the plane. Well, similar situation. Once again, this is the legacy of the patriots.
5: The fact that these nuts are out there in various bands and militias and all that, there's nothing- But they're to...
2: supported and led by the president. It's a huge difference.
5: He's, it's not a court, he's not a coordinated leader of them. He's just, uh, he's, uh, he was a cheerleader for them. He well, was, as, he,
2: Craig says, was, as Craig he, says, we he, don't know what kind of... Out, he
5: said he was <laughs> going to join them on the march. He egged them on, and I'm glad he did. But he also
2: planned for this by replacing the Pentagon time. brass. He planned for it. That's why he got rid of the Pentagon people. So <laughs> that he could control me with it.
5: Well, it'd be the first thing that he planned. It.
2: <laughs> well, according to Craig, it's not really him; it's Putin.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's even more ridiculous. So, uh, George
0: Jones, where, what are you saying on this? Oh.
1: The attack on the Michigan Capitol was uncovered as a result of the infiltration of the organizations that were involved in that by, I don't know, FBI agents or at least undercover agents.
5: agents.
1: So I think it's likely, although I've heard, obviously I I have no way of knowing for sure. I think it's likely that all of these white supremacist groups have government infiltrators associated with them. Mm -hmm. And that may be why the situation on the other day, on Wednesday, was not more serious than it actually might have been. Clearly, it was has been possible to identify members of a lot of the white supremacist groups who were involved in that, the Oath Takers, the Proud Boys, and, and, and their others. And so it, it seems to me, it, it would make sense to me at any rate, that the Justice Department and, and whomever, the CIA, whomever, has infiltrators involved in keeping an eye on those organizations. <laughs> now whether that's going to keep them from doing this again, that's another story and needless to say I don't know the answer to that. Or
2: help us prepare. That's, you know, that's yeah. the thing that strikes my me concern, one
1: of my major concerns is that a number of the organizations, the groups, the forces that that are charged with 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 protecting the capital and its 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 citizens, if you will, its, its residents, may themselves be involved with or have leanings towards some of these groups.
2: Absolutely, there's no question.
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Cut from the same cloth.
5: Yeah,
7: yeah. The other, oh, go ahead, George. No, I'm done. Well, go ahead, Marcy um the other big a huge thing that has changed since um since the Oklahoma City bombing is uh the rise and triumph of the internet and cybersecurity threats and the ability to do <clears throat> bad things forget about the good things all the bad things um that bad actors can do all kinds of bad actors um, and how they can communicate and plan together different subgroups. Um, But also to emphasize John's point, um, it has increased incompetence and the inability to provide people with the basics. Um, For example, Um, I spent four weeks trying to get my Verizon service fixed. And one of the repair people told me, well, Verizon split up, you know, the units this way and that way. And nobody in any unit can understand all the instructions. They're now responsible for understanding. And, And so... All, all the repair people or the business people or the financial people, everybody I was bounced around to could think of doing was to blame some other department, some place. Um, and it, it, I think addressing the lack of functionality and ability to be competent um, is, is crucial for survival in many ways and a few calls ago Ken said well he learned hard work from his family mm-hmm. and and if and i would add being responsible and ken said if if he had had to be a floor washer he would have done a, the best job he could at being a floor washer for the rest of his life, totally different from the rest of his life that thank God he had. Um, And so I think the disarray that there is to be afraid of um, is totally widespread and has many different causes and they all need to be attacked.
0: Let me ask you this, uh, Craig, in term what, what was it, what, what about the gay situation in the sense that in our, when you get, when you start reading the book, you'll see that we had, uh, there was a gay guy in our class named Bobby Gibbs, who, when we interviewed him, we never knew. And yeah. uh, I didn't know until we had, you know, gotten into the writing the book. Mm-hmm. And he just talked about being terrified of being found out at Harvard. And, uh, How did you deal with that? Or what's that situation?
3: Yeah, yeah, by the time I was there, you know, I got there in 1986, graduated in 1990. But in 1986, we were dealing with the AIDS crisis. So there wasn't a whole lot of people that I knew that were in any closet. We were trying to save each other's lives. Mm -hmm. So there was a very active... You know, gay presence at Harvard. It was open. It was you know, the Adams House is where I didn't live in Adams House. I lived in Cabot, but when I was there, Adams House was the place where most of the openly gay people lived. So the community was right there, mostly at Adams House. Um, not everybody got into Adams House who so even wanted to be there because you know we it was lottery. So I wanted to be in Adams House, and I didn't. You know, I didn't make the cut. Um, so there was literally a, a house on campus where people who were openly gay and lesbian and trans and everything else wanted to live because that's where the community was. It was it was wow. a beautiful experience. And that where was. are
2: you from originally?
3: Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
2: Okay.
3: My dad worked at Paps Blue
0: Ribbon Incorporated for 30 nice. <laughs> for 30 years. Wow. So and how then, did you yeah. go to get into the farm thing now? Tell us your path to getting becoming an organic
3: farmer. That was a little bit having to do with my dad too. When he passed away in 2007, it broke my heart and um, I got a little depressed. And um, when I came up from my depression, I saw an apparition of my dad walk right up the driveway and into the house. And I said to my husband, I'm going to be a farmer. And he said, oh, please, you can't even weed the garden. So he challenged (laughs) me and said, you're never going to do that. And I was like, watch me. So by the end of that, Growing season, my farm stand on the side of the road was selling thousands of dollars worth of vegetables because he. Describe checked. how
2: you did that. It's very difficult to do that.
3: I did it. I was determined. He said I couldn't do it, and nobody can tell me did I can't. You already
2: do it. have enough land.
3: Yes, yes. The, the land came with the farm. We bought a farm. Um, it, it's got about 25 acres, and it was a bed and breakfast when we bought it, and we kept it as that. We didn't farm it right away. We just had our own garden out back, but we have land. We have land. Like, we have land, and. There was farmland literally across the street that was in soil that I didn't want to use when I wanted to be a farmer. And so, what did I do? <laughs> I went to the highest point of the property, behind the barn, right above the valley that used to be a rock quarry. And most of the sand was soil and rocks. It was the poorest, poorest, poorest soil on the farm, and that's where I decided to grow food because. To
2: say what what were you doing?
3: There? <laughs> I wanted to enrich the poorest part of the soil and make it you, be the most. It's
2: bringing- you brought in truckloads
3: of compost? Of top- truckloads of compost and, and peat and wood ash. And I, I burned, we put piles of wood up and we burned forestry. I mean, we. I'm like, I, my husband says, why do you want to do it here? I said, because this is the most challenging part. And if I can produce food up here, then I would really, it would be a double whammy to you telling me I can't do this.
0: <laughs> well, how did
3: you, you end up in Maine in the first place? Serendipity. Oh, serendipity? Really? Yeah, serendipity. I fell in love with Maine in 1989 when, oh, 1990, right after we graduated, right after I graduated. uh, My roommate that I lived with for a short time thereafter who was actually in law school, um, he had been a good friend of mine from the Boston area. Um, He had a cottage on Peaks Island and he invited me to it one Columbus Day weekend where um, he always had like maybe five or six guests, friends there. And so I went up and I just fell in love with the light in in Maine. It's like, I crossed into Maine and I got over the, whatever the, the, I don't even know. And into Portland and the light changed. It just got, I'm a watercolor painter. And so I just saw, I saw everything like went into technicolor and it was because the light changed. And so I just said, and then Peaks Island was heaven. It, it was really, really, at that point, my favorite island I had ever visited and it's still kind of up there. It's just it's still kind of up there and I've visited more islands since, but I fell in love with the light. So in 2002, when um, the real estate market was at that seller's advantage because because the crash that didn't was about to happen was right, you know, we were right there on the cliff right before the, the housing market crash. Our, we found out that our our Victorian Mansard Victorian 1867 house in Boston that he bought before we were together for 139 thousand dollars was now able to be sold for half a million and we were like, what? <laughs> so we had been looking for um, like you know vacation property in Maine to go skiing and you know all that stuff that we like to do. And once we decided that we could cash out, and then my husband had an epiphany and said, "Let's just move to Maine." And I thought, "You want to move? Um, you don't just want to have a you know a place to go?" And he said, "No, I want to move there." So we sold the house in five days and found this farm, and here we are. Wow. Well, yeah.
2: tell me how yeah. you started the
3: farm. Did you yeah. hire people? No, I hired no one. I did it all myself. Good old-fashioned elbow grease. Very. And I had to read a lot about building soil and I had to do all that. But my dad was a gardener and he told me how to grow. I I saw him grow food in our backyard in the middle of the city of the ghetto in Milwaukee. And he got so much food out of no property at all.
2: So you had some lessons from your father. Yeah,
3: exactly. He always said you can trick anything to grow. You can grow anything in weather as long as you trick it to make it believe it's somewhere else. And so he just knew how to make everything.
2: <laughs> That's not been
3: my so, experience. So, even in Maine, I can grow sweet potatoes and watermelon and okra and collard greens. Well, collard greens are cold weather crop, believe it or not. But um, okra is a hot weather. crop. I can grow okra in Maine like nobody wow, can. Wow. Really? I
5: can grow mm. hot. It. <laughs> that, that's you, you're, you're, um, how much how much land do you have under uh motivation yeah two uh-huh. acres uh-huh
3: two acres all by hand i i, I have no machinery you I literally... <laughs> and you're the main one who works it yep
2: you don't yep. have a tractor i
3: don't know how you can do your other stuff <laughs> you I don't don't tractor. um i don't either i'm a task Obviously, um, yeah, I that's a lot of work. Obviously, yeah. but I've learned what I've learned is this: as an organic, sustainable farmer, I don't like to chew up the soil too much anyway. So I've mm-hmm. learned what row cover is. I've learned how to use plastic, black plastic mulch. Mm-hmm. I learned how to not have to till soil <laughs> for more reasons because. You know if you cover the soil and keep the ecosystem right you can just uncover it and go for it and so you learn all these shortcuts when you understand that when i have come to understand that permaculture is actually better than agriculture right and so even though i am a farmer i don't till a lot i till some i'm not a no-till farm but you don't mm-hmm. have to till every year if you've got good soil then you keep it covered in the winter time and do you need to keep adding nutrients yeah But when your soil is healthy and the soil is sweet and the the plants you grow therefore have the right sugar content and then where the bugs will pretty much leave them alone, you just don't have a lot of inputs.
5: Hmm.
3: And so you plant the seeds and you irrigate and you harvest. And most of the work is on the back end, harvesting the food and putting
0: it up. Have you been uh, back to any of your class reunions and what's your sense of the status of... uh status of Harvard right now? I have
3: been to just about all of my classroom reunions except one. Um, I have to be honest and say I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to what the status of Harvard is right now, because when I became a legislator and a farmer, it it just, just wasn't anything I paid attention to anymore. I go to my reunion, see my friends and come home. So I don't know. I've been learning a little bit more about it because I've become more active in the you know, in our um, Facebook group, Harvard Class of 1990. Um, because, you know, as you get to the 25 and the 30 and the 35 anniversaries, as you all know, you just want to keep up with people more. It seems like I didn't really care about keeping up with people for the first 10 years after graduation, and now here I am. But the other connection that I have to Harvard, this, which is outside of my class, that also keeps me very connected, and I do keep closer contact with those folks, is that I started the Harvard Callbacks as a freshman. And so that's an acapella singing group that, again, Archie Epps told me that we would never have a concert in Sanders Theater. And I said, you just watch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and now it's one of the most popular acapella groups at Harvard. And it is, what, 30 years old because I found it in nineteen. century. Why did you think
4: you'd never make it? Why did Archie Epps think you'd never- Because he
3: refused to believe that the uh, student body needed another acapella group because the year before we came along, the Veritones had just formed and they were a co-ed group. <laughs> Three years before that, the Opportunes had formed and they were a co-ed group. And then of course there were the Pitches and the Denatonics and the Crocodillos at the time. And so he just didn't think that, that there, was, there, was, there was any need for another acapella singing group that was co-ed or an acapella singing group at all. Right. And I just didn't agree with him.
2: Right. <laughs> what was your group called?
3: The callbacks.
2: The callback. Okay.
3: Yes, because we were all, we got together because we had all been called back to other groups, but we didn't make the final cut. And so we just decided to <laughs> cut <up the> group. <laughs> we're not good enough for you. but well watch this. There you have it. So I said, let's have another one. So we started <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I stood out. Outside of the uh, Holton Chapel, and the last group that I auditioned for at Harvard, I'm like, I'm getting in. It was the, it was the, um, the chorus, um, the Harvard Men's Choir. What was it called? Wait, Whatever. So, say it. My brain is on fire. What was the Harvard Men's Chorus called?
0: I don't know. Do we have I don't one? No. I don't
3: know. Yeah. There might not have been one.
2: Just go on. <laughs>
3: I thought well anyway, it was it maybe it was, maybe it wasn't the men's, maybe it was a maybe, no, actually, no, it wasn't a men's chorus. It was the Harvard, it was the it was co ed. It wasn't. Right. So um that I feel like I'm gonna get into a chorus. Acapella groups are tricky. You've got to have the right voice for the right part, you know, they're smaller groups, and it doesn't matter if you, you know, the best singer in the world, you may not necessarily fit into any of the groups. And of course, my voice didn't fit into any of the groups. And so I was standing there with my colleague classmate, um Don Clark, who's now Morgan London, and she too had tried out for everything, didn't get into anything. We both thought we're getting in the so we went over to Holy Chapel. We were happy that we were going to see our names together on that, and we were like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> and on that moment, she said, "Let's just do our own damn group." And I was like, "Yeah, let's just do our own group." So we convened some of the folks that had the same fate we had, and we met and. Uh, My dorm was Strauss, so we met in the Strauss common room, and that's where the callbacks had their humble beginnings. And uh, now, you know, they're everything that there is that any acapella group would want to be all these years later. So that's my legacy at Harvard. All right.
2: Great. I'm exhausted (laughs) by your energy.
3: (laughs) I mean, how old are you now, anyway? How old? 53. I turned 53 December 8th, so I'm not that's just a kid youngster
2: young for us
3: (laughs) and old for me (laughs) i'm old for a generation of black gay men i can tell you that (laughs) Um, i buried half of my friends if not more in 1994 so i can say i'm old as as who i am yeah i've survived quite a bit of things but um
2: just take a look at us
3: (laughs) i feel i feel i do feel like i'm just right where i need to be today
5: hey i wondered about your um ability to grow okra, because here in Michigan, I've tried to grow okra. Yeah, well. I got it.
2: He's I, just better than we are, John. I've tried
5: I, I, He's got to do something tricky to get that <laughs> okra.
3: It's a little tricky. I mean, okra, I always say okra is a diva. Um, she needs a lot of hot weather to grow, but she doesn't take long to grow. So it's about how you get it to germinate. And the soil needs to be sweet and it doesn't need a lot of water it just needs a lot of fertility that's not too acidic but in maine where i live i have to plant to get a really good crop of okra i can do it two ways or two ways at the same time or one or the other i can start it all indoors and set it out in June. Okra does not like to be transplanted because she's a diva so that doesn't always give you the best result but it's certainly a backup plan for when you don't get your seeds in on time because of a weather event. But if I direct seed okra on June 23rd, which is my parents' wedding anniversary, mm. I get okra by the first week of September every year. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, it gets hot in Maine right now. And there's drought every year. There's been drought in Maine for maybe the last six or seven and the last two or three, it's been severe. And, and so, Oprah likes dry weather as long as it's hot and it's been hot and dry. So as long as it germinates hmm. and you and you keep lime and wood ash in that soil,
4: it's gonna do just fine.
2: I don't know, John.
4: <laughs> I mean, Gray, I, uh, Craig, I've grown you some. may be interested to know, I have some friends who are over the road truckers. Say that again. They, I have some friends who are over the road truckers. They drive semis across Wisconsin. And the stretch of 94 that runs from down near Milwaukee to Minneapolis, they call Venison Alley.
5: Oh, uh, yeah, a dead deer. <laughs> because they
4: hit a lot of deer. Yeah. And the deer will feed a family for a good part of the winter.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we have, we definitely, uh, uh, Mason will tell you, m- moose and cars up in the county tend to talk to each other way too much. Yeah.
1: Um, you
3: yeah. uh,
6: <laughs> <laughs> usually kill a good half dozen Canadians a year coming down from...
5: <laughs> oh, I remember, yeah, I remember two Frenchmen and a Renault hit a deer in Maine when we were last in Maine. And, you know, and the Renault not get the moose, the moose won. <laughs> they were dead as a doornail. <laughs> right, well, listen, thank they would have thanks, thanks,
0: everybody. Thanks, Greg. Was Greg really thank great. you very yeah. much. Good thank luck. You, All right. Uh, Take everybody. care. See
4: you guys next week.
0: Thank you. See everybody
2: yeah.
5: enjoy week. it Thanks. thanks. Take Bye. care. Take it easy. Bye.
0: And that's it for episode 16 of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.